Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Today, we're talking to Florence Doerr, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She was a fellow at the Center in 2008 and 9, and will be returning this year as she continues her work exploring the relationship between popular music and literature. This fall, she'll be joined by other scholars, critics, and musicians for a conference October 14th and 15th at the National Humanities Center on the topic entitled Novel Sounds, American Fiction in the Age of Rock and Roll. Welcome, Florence. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. So talk to us a little bit about your own personal context, your own personal interest in becoming a scholar of rock and roll. And it it strikes, I think, most scholars and most people at universities that rock and roll has not very often been a subject of serious scholarly examination. Is this true? And and why are you addressing it? What's interesting is that Rock and roll has been the subject of scholarly inquiry from, but only a few music scholars, really. Um, and I guess some uh, critics of pop culture as well. What I'm bringing to it and what I find really intriguing about it is actually the overlap between literature and rock and roll in the 1950s. So while we've had you know, studies of the high literary in the 1950s and we've had studies of rock and roll by historians, The historian Andre Millard calls rock and roll the most popular musical form in the 20th century. I don't think it's an exaggeration. Um, We haven't really found out what the meaningful relationship is between them or what the actual relationship between literature and rock and roll has been. Um, I think the surprise is that we've had, you know, studies of high culture and low culture, um, which claim that things we've considered to be low culture are actually high culture, Um, But what we haven't understood is the extent to which that divide, at least as concerns rock and roll, has been completely false. So what interested me, I really didn't start off thinking, oh, I'll write about rock and roll. I just discovered that Lead Belly had been at, and I'm in my personal life, I made a rock and roll record. I'm married to a rock and roll drummer, so I'm very interested in uh, rock and roll music. But um, again, never thought of it as part of my scholarly inquiry until I discovered, and I don't even know, I think it was just reading a biography of Lead Belly, that he had been at the MLA in 1934 in Philadelphia. And I thought, now that's interesting (laughs) and really strange. And so that overlap led me to find just numerous others and to discover, actually, it's a historical kind of phenomenon that we're examining here that we've, you know, lit upon uh, that the ballads that lead to rock and roll in American vernacular culture are the very same ballads. They are early Scottish and English ballads that you know, Harvard professor Francis James Child and George Lyman Kitteridge, who are early scholars of Spencer and Shakespeare, that they discovered and that they found meaningful in um, establishing literature in the 19th century and early 20th century at Harvard. And then I found out, strangely, that John Lomax, an eminent folklorist, um, who most people have probably heard of, John Lomax and his son, Alan Lomax, um, but John Lomax attended Harvard for a year um, and studied with um, George Lyman Kitteridge. And so his interest in ballads was actually in part inspired by the Shakespearean who said, go out and find 
ballads now, right? Find what you can find. And so he did. And there was another, Robert Gordon, who founded the Folklore Society at the Smithsonian, also was at Harvard uh, working with Kitteridge. So there's just this rich overlap between the origins of rock and roll in ballads and the origins of literature. So how do we see that in, what are some examples of, say, some contemporary novels or mm-hmm. recent novels mm-hmm. that are drawing on rock and roll and, mm-hmm. and, and tracing back to the ballad tradition and also the blues tradition? Yeah. The conference that you're talking about draws from two periods in the history of rock and roll, the birth of rock and what some people describe as the death of rock, which is sort of recent, 2000s to, I don't know, REM broke up in 2011. That seems like a good watershed for it. At that death of rock moment, there are just, this is something that I also noticed, a bunch of novelists, sort of our most renowned American novelists, are writing about rock and roll. Specifically, Jonathan Lethem in Fortress of Solitude is very, very interested in incorporating the work of Bob Dylan, for example. His main character's name is Dylan Ebdis, and he's specifically named after Bob Dylan. The parents are Dylan fans. The author, Dana Spiota, writes Eat the Document. The title of that novel is taken from a documentary that Bob Dylan made and never put out. Lori Moore's main character in A Gate at the Stairs kind of comes to her denouement, sort of changes as a character when she you know, starts playing bass in a band. So I uh, wrote an article in 2013 just called The Rock Novel, just explaining this phenomenon. So those novelists, I'm trying to think if any of them reach back to the ballad tradition. I don't think so much. But what I found interesting is that going back to the 1950s in the U.S. South, people like Flannery O'Connor are writing a story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And we're so accustomed to understanding O'Connor on her own terms as a Southern novelist that we forget that A Good Man is Hard to Find was a hit for Bessie Smith in 1927, the blues uh, songstress. Bessie Smith actually had a great hit with that. So O'Connor is referring to the Bessie Smith song, and that's something that's radically underexplored in scholarship. And then it turned out that Robert Penn Warren, Donald Davidson, the poet Donald Davidson at Vanderbilt, William Styron, all of these Southern authors were drawing on the ballad tradition in particular. And so that's what the first book is about, at the birth of rock. And then the second book that I'm writing is about this 21st century phenomenon at the death of rock. Are there attempts to sort of, we're talking about different uh, mediums. So we're talking Mm -hmm. about the auditory, the musical, and then we're talking about the print medium. And so is this a, is there a blurring of the boundaries between those two? Is, are, in terms of the reader versus the listener, are, are there distinctions to be made or, you know, how does this go? Absolutely. And it's a great question. Um, One of the arguments about the book in the 1950s, uh, about Southern fiction in the 1950s, is that the Southern authors I'm examining kind of posit or advance the idea of their novels as mechanical forms. In um, 1957, Ian Watt famously wrote The Rise of the Novel, where he's looking at the rise of the 18th century British novel. And it's a great book. We've thought about it in terms of relationships between privacy and the novel and all kinds of, you know, the establishment of the sensory subject. He says the novel was part of what Locke did 
to you know sort of make the sensory subject central in modern thinking. But one of the things he says in that book is also that novels work by virtue of the uniformity of the mechanical print. So we get in a strange moment in The Rise of the Novel, which I read in my first book, Watts says we, the sensory subject comes alive for us when we turn off our own senses under the lull of the mechanical print. So he's really interested in the novel as a mechanical form. It's not his primary thesis, but he includes this and a few references to it, actually, in that book. And what I'm finding is that in these novels, correspondingly, there's an interest in the novel as a technical form. And there's a kind of, I mean, I think these Southern writers are kind of making a joke, right? They're saying, we are the guardians of the high literary, we Southern authors in the 1950s, and guess what? This is a mechanical form. Print is a mechanical form. It makes you hear just like a, a record makes you hear, right? So clearly there are actually distinctions to be made. When you put on a phonograph, you hear Bessie Smith singing. But in a way, when you read Flannery O'Connor's story in 1954, you're hearing Bessie Smith sing that song too, right? So one of the things that I think scholars need to do now is to sort of uncover that elided history so that we can put ourselves back there and think, what would it be like in 1953 to read a story by the most celebrated, one of the most celebrated white authors who names her story after an African-American blues singer? That was part of the experience that I think we've since lost. So are there differences between the way that rock and roll responds to history and the literary form responds to history. I'm thinking that typically we're thinking of, particularly in 60s rock and roll, we're thinking, and, and punk rock, and et cetera, we're thinking it as very counterculture, where we often receive literature, particularly classical literature, as the embodiment of culture. So how do we deal with that sort of, is there a discrepancy there or... Yes, I think there is. Um, and I think especially when you're talking about the 1960s or punk rock, right? Those would be the perfect examples of the countercultural rock and roll. But Bob Dylan, even though he was part of that counterculture, also was canonical, I'm finding, right? I think, you know, especially what the one Dylan scholar calls the Dylanologists will tell you that he kind of experienced the emergence of Frankie Avalon and Johnny Ray and these really popular commercial rock and roll artists as an opportunity to step back and start listening to Odetta and Lead Belly and child ballads, you know, ballads from the 14th century in England and Scotland. So one of the chapters in my book, I actually trace the history of one ballad in particular. It's a 14th century ballad called The Demon Lover. And in 1954, Donald Davidson writes a novel. He's a poet at Vanderbilt. He was one of the fugitives. He inspired the new critics. So what you're talking about, the establishment of culture, he sort of embodied it. And he wrote a novel based on the plot of The Demon Lover and includes The Demon Lover in the plot. So it's not only an allegory of the same plot, it's also explicitly in the story. The American variant of this ballad is called The House Carpenter. So he calls it The House Carpenter in there. And just a few years later, Bob Dylan records that ballad. At the second his second recording session ever was a recording of The Demon Lover for Columbia Records in New York. Now that's interesting. 
right? Because we would like to think of rock and roll, and we do, and there are good reasons why we think of rock and roll as countercultural. It has been, but there is a way in which rock and roll is actually deeply historical and deeply laudatory of earlier forms, of vernacular forms. But it turns out so is literature. I mean, think of Shakespeare, right? That's he's celebrated as a vernacular artist. Are there moments in literature the latter part of the 20th and early part of the 21st century that are equivalent to, uh, say, Dylan plugging in at Newport, at the Newport uh, Festival, you know, where he, when he goes electric and that's seen as a sort of violation of, of traditional folk music and therefore a sort of a radical departure? I mean, has that been picked up at all in, in a literary form? That's an interesting question. You know, I guess I would say that there are all kinds of metaphorical ways in which literature has gone electric, right? So maybe the digital book or um, digital humanities might be a response to that. But one of the things that these 1950s novelists show us is that that's kind of a fantasy, right? That the books have always been electric, right? Since the printing press, in a way. That is, it's a medium, so what I find interesting is that even through the 60s, when Dylan went electric, Clanth Brooks and Robert Penn Warren and literary scholars across the United States were celebrating Faulkner, Southern novelists, as linked more clearly to this oral ballad tradition. And it's almost as if the association between uh, literature and the kind of what you're calling the dominant cultures association between literature and the ballad literature and oral music were a refusal of Dylan going electric, were a refusal or a way to try to separate from this essentially post-human form, right? Which is just this human being with this electric guitar making what sounds like an oral expression into something euphoric. So the tendency to think of literature as separate, I think, is a way to salvage an idea of a you know, purely present body that actually was seeming under some question as Dylan went electric. So Novel Sounds will be the conference October 14th and 15th at the National Humanities Center. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, and please join us again for another podcast from the National Humanities Center. Thank you so much, Florence. Thank you very much. 